October 6, 1965, went down as one of the greatest moments in sports history. But to understand what happened on that particular day, we need to go back in time. Two years earlier, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees were locked in a World Series. New York had one of the greatest teams ever, with the home run hitting duo of Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, and their ace pitcher, Whitey Ford. The underdog Dodgers had one of the poorest hitting teams of either league, but they had a great pitching staff led by Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. Koufax was chosen to start the series against the great Whitey Ford. To walk into an arena such as Yankee Stadium, with all of its history, its legendaries, the aura of the occasion, was enough to shake up many a young player. And certainly the partisan Yankee fans thought that this young Koufax would break. He would crack when he came out at the beginning of the game. Koufax had only two pitches, a fastball that suddenly seemed to rise as it approached the plate, and a curveball that dove so fast at the very end that Juan Marichal one time broke a bat chasing after uh, one of his curveballs as he hit it on home plate. The first three batters to face Koufax were Tony Kubek, Bobby Richardson, and Tom Tresh. Koufax threw 12 balls. Nine of them were strikes. He struck out the side. The next inning, the great Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris came to bat, and he eliminated them just as easily as he did the first three. Thus, he greeted the powerful Yankees by striking out the first five men he faced. And he went on to strike out a World Series record of 15 batters and a 4 to nothing complete game shutout. The Dodgers went on to win the 1963 World Series in four straight games, with Koufax winning the first and the fourth game. Then two years later, the year that we're most interested in, 1965, the Dodgers were in the World Series again, but this time against the Minnesota Twins. And Koufax would again stun the baseball world. He was scheduled to start the series, and for good reason, because he was the best pitcher. A team wanted to have its best pitcher pitch the first game because then he could pitch the fourth game. And if it came down to a seven-game series, he would also be able to pitch the last game, giving him three starts. This would be the best advantage. But the series opener was scheduled for October the 6th. To the world, just another day. But to Jews, October the 6th, 1965, was Yom Kippur, what we know of as the Day of Atonement. And Sandy Koufax was Jewish. The greatest pitcher of the day, arguably the greatest pitcher of all time, certainly the greatest left-hander, refused to pitch on the opening day of the World Series because it fell on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is a day that stands alone as the most holy day of the year among Jews. Jews such as Koufax, who are nominal in their beliefs, may work on the weekly Sabbath as he did. He'd pitch on any Sabbath during the year, but not on the Day of Atonement. And the question is why? Why is this day so important to the Jews? Quoting from Jane Levy, who wrote a book by the title of Koufax, she said, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. Those who repent their sins are inscribed in the Book of Life. On October 6, 1965, Koufax was inscribed forever in the Book of Life as the Jew who refused to pitch on Yom Kippur. Perhaps this is an overstatement or oversimplification of the Jewish understanding of this day, but it partly explains why they take it so seriously. So the questions for us today are, do we fully appreciate the importance of this day that we are celebrating right now? Do we understand what it means? Do we take it as seriously as the Jewish people do? 
do we comprehend just how special this day is? The Day of Atonement, the ceremony that the Israelites kept, is found back in the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus. And so we're going to turn there right now, and we're going to look at what the Scriptures tell us the Jews were to do, not just the Jews, but the Israelites, all of them, on this Day of Atonement. This is a section of Scripture, I think, that sometimes is confusing for people, because you start reading it, and it starts talking about killing this animal, and then taking its blood and doing something with it, and then killing another animal, and then killing another one, and laying hands on animals, and doing this and that, and pretty soon you kind of get lost in all the animals. But when we read it carefully, we find that it's very comprehensible. It's not nearly as incomprehensible as one might think. And I've brought a few props today to simplify it a little bit to kind of give us the mental image that we need to have of what was taking place there. So I'll bring them out as is appropriate. But in the 16th chapter, I like to divide up the, the chapter into three sections, uh, verses 1 through 5, which give us a little bit of an overview of what was to be done. And then verses 6 to 10 give us a little bit more detail of it. And then from verses 11 through the end of the chapter, it explains the whole ceremony of what was to be uh, done at that time. So let's read the first five verses and notice what they tell us. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Eternal and died. And the Eternal said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Now, it's important that we understand the whole uh, picture here of the tabernacle. In the wilderness, they built a rectangular structure of curtains. Uh, they, they had curtains of a certain height, and they were rectangular in shape, and it was a border between everything around it and where the temple, or not the temple, but the uh, tabernacle was to be placed. And so the whole area was a curtained-off area, rectangular in shape. And inside that, when you walked through the entrance of it, there was an altar where they burnt the sacrifices. And then you came to a rectangular tent structure that was there. And two-thirds, the first two-thirds of that rectangular tent, because this part was covered, the other part was not. It just had a court around there. But the rectangular tent that was found within this court uh, that was cordoned off by curtains. Uh, this rectangular tent had two parts to it. The first part, the first two-thirds of it, contained the showbread, the candles, or the seven, uh, the candelabra, and a, an altar of an incense. And they burned incense there. And then there was, it was a veil that divided this from what was called the Most Holy Place, where the Ark of the Covenant was. So the priest would go in any time during the year into the, the first section there, and they would take care of the showbread. They would take the old showbread out. They would put 12 new loaves in. They would tend to the candlesticks to keep them burning. They would offer up incense at different times, mornings and evenings and different times that they had to offer the incense. But they would not go beyond that veil where the Ark of the Covenant was, except once a year. Now, of course, there were times when they had to take all this down and set it back up, and we understand that. But as far as performing any kind of a religious ceremony, it was only to be done once a year, and that was done on this Day of Atonement. And that's why the Eternal said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place, into this, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which pictured the mercy seat, uh, the place where God dwelt, as it were. And he was only to go there once a year. And when he went there, verse 3, it says, Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull. So we're going to introduce here a young bull. This was what he was to come into the holy place with, 
the blood as he cut the throat of the animal, and he was to come into the holy place, or the most holy place, with the blood of a young bull. It says, as a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering. Now, we're not really getting there to where he does this yet. It's just giving us the overview here. So he is to have a young bull, and he is to have a ram for himself and for his family. This is what he was to offer up on this day of atonement. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. So we see that the priest was to take a bull and a ram. This was his part of it. But for the people, the congregation, they were to offer up two goats and a ram. So this was their part of it. So we have five animals all together. That's all that we have here. But if you don't divide it up properly, it seems like they're killing animals all over the place, like there were many of them, but they're really just five. There were two goats, two rams, and one young bullock. Now, beginning in verse 6, we see a little bit more detail here. It kind of goes back and picks up a little bit more detail. It's a little different section. It says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. So that's what the bull is for, for Aaron and his household. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. He's to take the two goats, and he's to cast lots over them to decide which one represents the Lord, which one represents Azazel. And as we see here, they look very much alike, and these were to be two perfect goats, and they would, for all practical purposes, just be two goats, but without blemish of any kind there. Otherwise, undistinguishable. He's to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the eternal, or the Lord, and the other lot for the Azazel, or the scapegoat. Scapegoat is really a shortened version of the goat that escapes, the escape goat. And of course, Satan has deceived people into thinking that a scapegoat is one who is taking the blame for something that he is not guilty of. And Satan would certainly like us to believe that he is not guilty of what he's being accused of. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the Azazel, or scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So this tells us in essence, these two passages, the first five verses and then verses 6 through 10, they give us a little bit of the overview of what is going to be done. Now, beginning in verse 11, it, it goes back and it starts over again, and it tells us the whole ceremony for the day. It says, Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering. This is his, the one for himself and for his family. He is to bring the bull and... He shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. So inside to where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is in the testimony, lest he die. And we know from the book of Revelation that the incense is symbolic of the prayers of the saints. So it is symbolic of the prayers of the people coming up before God at that time. And he shall put the incense of fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of this bull, and he is to sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat and on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times." Then he is to kill the goat of the sin offering. This is the one 
upon which the lot fell that was for the Lord or the eternal. For God, represented God, or specifically Jesus Christ, as we shall see. He's to take this goat and he's to kill it. And he's to take some of the blood of this goat and bring its blood inside the veil. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So the bullock was the blood for himself and his family. The blood of this goat represented the nation, their offering in this particular case. And it represented, as it says, the Lord. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of the transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There should be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself. That's with the blood of the bull for his household, again for him, and for all the assembly of Israel. That was what the goat was for. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. This is the one on whom the lot fell that represented the azazel, as the original word is, or the escape goat, the goat that escapes into the wilderness. He takes this one now, as it says um, in verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. So he would take the goat, he would lay hands, both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man." The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquity to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, and shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he uh, went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in the holy place, put on his garments, come out, and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. Now, this is where the two rams come in. He was to have one ram for himself and his family, and the other one for the people. So now we have the two rams, and this is where they are slaughtered and sacrificed at this particular point. So we had the bullock. We've seen what happened with the two goats, and now we have the two rams. So we have all five animals that were sacrificed on this day. He shall wash his body with water, verse 24, in a holy place, put on the garments, and uh, then come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat as a scapegoat or a scapegoat or a zazel shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, he was to carry outside the camp and to burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Verse 28. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it tells us that this is a statute forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your country or a stranger who dwells among you. Now, we'll see a little bit later that the expression afflict your soul means to humble oneself through fasting. And so, this is a day that we are to fast. And this was a day that Sandy Koufax fast, fasted. And it's a day that I fasted. And I was in my first year at Ambassador College, the second year that I had fasted. And 
we were, in a sense, fasting together. I for one reason, he for another reason, speaking of Sandy Koufax. He had different reasons. He didn't understand all the things that... He may have understood these things, but to understand the significance of them, he certainly did not. But God has chosen to reveal to His people the real meaning of this day and why they did these things and what they represent and what it means for you and me and for the world. For on the day, that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the eternal. Verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Now let's move forward a little bit here. And notice what the significance of all these things are. As Leviticus 16 tells us in the Old Testament what was to be done, the book of Hebrews explains the Day of Atonement from the New Testament perspective. And we'll pick it up in chapter 8, but it really fills the, in part, the 7th chapter, mostly the 8th and the ninth and the 10th chapters. And we find that in these passages, which refer to a lot of different things, we find the meaning of the Day of Atonement because it does specifically refer a part of this to this particular day. The first thing that we learn is that the high priest who offered up the bull for himself and laid his hands on the head of the, the, the goat that was the Azazel goat after having cast lots as to which one was the Azazel and which one represented the Lord. And the one that offered up the two, uh, the two rams, the priest that did all of those actions, the priest that went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood there and sprinkled on the altar afterward, the high priest that did all those things, we learn from the 8th chapter of Hebrews that he was a type of Jesus the Christ. Notice here in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary. A minister of the sanctuary. In other words, it's referring back to this sanctuary or this tabernacle that I described earlier. And it's speaking of the one who came after the order of Melchizedek there in the seventh chapter. This high priest, and it's referring to Christ here, he says he is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. You see, men put together the physical tabernacle at the time of Moses. They sewed it together, they brought the skins, they brought the, the uh, various uh, uh, aspects of the, the tabernacle, and they put it together there. But it's saying that there is a sanctuary in heaven that was made by God, not man. He says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, referring to Christ, that this one also have something to offer. For if he, Christ, were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now, verse 6, he has obtained, he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. We see that the tabernacle itself was a type of God's throne in heaven. Notice again verse 5 who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was instructed, divinely instructed by God, in other words, when he was about to make the tabernacle, when he was ready to construct it, he was told, these were the instructions, see, do you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain? And so, God, actually the one who became Jesus Christ, who was going to ultimately be the sacrifice and the high priest and uh, all these things, showed Moses a particular pattern to show him how to build this tabernacle and to do it exactly as 
he told them to because it was a type of heavenly things. We can notice over in the ninth chapter, verse 1, it says, Then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, this earthly physical sanctuary that they had there. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, going into that second part of this rectangular tent that was in this courtyard, behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or sometimes we call it the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We don't know all the last details of it, but it was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a a box, a very elaborate, uh, elegant box, uh, covered with gold. And inside of it you had uh, the manna, and you had Aaron's rod that budded. But on top was, as it were, a seat, and it was covered over by the, the wings of the cherubim that were there. So we see that this is, is a type of certain heavenly things. Notice uh, the ninth chapter, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. You see, Christ didn't enter into a physical tabernacle or a a physical temple to offer up Himself, but Christ entered into the holy places uh, that were made without hands because they were just copies of the true, but He entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, He had to enter into a tabernacle. He had to enter into a sanctuary, not made by hands, but He had to go before the very throne of God with the blood that He had shed, with His own blood. And, of course, that was all symbolic. I I don't think that... uh, We certainly don't have a doctrine that He literally carried His physical blood up to heaven and presented it before God. But, as it were, he was offering himself up in that way. He appeared before God uh, on that uh, first day after he'd been resurrected. And he appeared before God to be accepted by God as a suitable sacrifice for sin. The sacrificed animals also had a type, and they were types of Jesus Christ. So, the tabernacle pictured God's throne... the place of God's dwelling. The high priest was a type of Jesus Christ, but the animals themselves that were sacrificed were types of Jesus Christ as well, as he had to offer himself up. Notice verse 11 of chapter 9. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all. Just as the high priest entered once a year, Christ entered once, only once, for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... So, it brings in other sacrifices in this context. It it mixes the Day of Atonement in with the whole sacrificial system there. It says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Let's notice also in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, beginning in verse 1. It says, For the law, 
having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these physical sacrifices, with a goat, with a bull, with rams, uh, none of these physical sacrifices can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. The offering up of a, a lamb or a bull or a goat cannot cleanse your heart and my heart. It cannot clean us up from our past sins. Instead, it's a reminder of our sins year by year. That's what the Israelites actually had there. But in those sacrifices, verse 3, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And the promise, the prophecies of the Messiah suffering and shedding His blood go all the way back to Genesis, the third chapter, when it talks about the serpent bruising his heel, but he will bruise the head of the serpent. Uh, It was typed by Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice, his firstborn, Abraham being a type of God the Father, Isaac being a type of Jesus Christ. The Passover lamb that was sacrificed as they were coming out of Egypt, that was a type of the Lamb of God, where John, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus and his two disciples were standing there with him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And we're told that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So when it speaks here in the volume of a book that is written of me, we find that uh, it is written from from Genesis on. There were types, there were references to the fact that Christ would have to suffer, that He would have to give His life. In Isaiah 52, the latter part of it, in all of Isaiah 53, it talks about how He was to be bruised, and he was to be a uh, uh, spear uh, jammed into his side. He was going to pour out his soul unto death or uh, for our, our sins. He was a sacrifice for us. Very clearly stated there in Isaiah 53. In Zechariah, the 12th chapter, it talks about how uh, Christ is going to come back and he's going to save the, the uh, Jewish nation at that time. And it says, then they will look on him whom they have pierced. So there are references all through the Old Testament of this great sacrifice that was to take place. So the sacrificial animals were types of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now let us look at the mysterious second goat. The significance of this second goat, the Azazel goat, is controversial among scholars. Some say that it represents Christ removing our sins. And they refer to Psalm 103, verse 12, where He removes our sins as far as east is from the west, and so forth. Others maintain that Azazel is the name of, or represents a demon of the desert that needed to be appeased. The New Bible Commentary Revised says this, the idea of atoning for sin as involving a ransom or sin offering to Satan or to an unknown demon of the desert. In other words, some people actually believe that the goat that is is let loose there, the, the, the high priest laid his hands on the head of the goat, confessed the sins, and now they're going to offer up this goat as an offering to Satan or some demon out in the wilderness. The idea of the goat bearing to the demon the tidings that atonement for sin has been made. Now, that's rather a bizarre thought when you think about it, because, um, you know, offerings to demons or to Satan go against everything that God taught Israel and that God wants from us. We don't make offerings to demons or to Satan. We find that Azazel stands in contrast for the Lord. One goat is for the Lord 
and the other is for Azazel, or the escape goat, the goat that escapes. Now, to really understand the significance of this second goat, it would help us to have a little bit of an overview of the holy days. And in Colossians, the second chapter, we read this very often during these holy days because this is a passage of Scripture that the translators and the commentators and those who are against the law of God have really uh, ruined in the sense of the way it's been translated. They have made it very deceptive in the way that it's translated to really hide the significance. I, I think sincerely they believe that the law is done away with and so they have to uh, word this a certain way. But Satan, who is behind it all, has taken a very powerful Scripture, a very important Scripture when it comes to what it really does mean for us, and he's taken it and put it in a situation where we look on it as a difficult Scripture that we have to explain away what it does not mean. And so often we fail to see what it really does mean. And so it says here in verse 16 of Colossians 2, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, the sense is that don't let someone tell you you have to keep the Sabbath or the new moons or uh, the um, uh, a festival, whatever it may be, uh, or, or tell you that you shouldn't eat certain foods. This is the idea that they pass off because they're just mere shadows. That's all. They're just mere shadows. They're unimportant. But the real substance is Christ. And that's not at all what this passage is saying. When we look at it more carefully, and I know that many of our old timers are very familiar with this, but we have new people coming along all the time. And sometimes old timers have to hear things a few times before it finally sinks into exactly what it means. So, let's just review it again. In the second half of verse 17, in the New King James, it says, but the substance is of Christ. The Old King James says, but the body is of Christ. And here in the New King James, beside the word substance, I have a little one by it, and I go to the margin for this verse, and it says one, L-I-T period, which is abbreviation for literally. So the literal word, if you were translated from Greek into English, the literal word is body. It comes from the word soma in Greek. And it means body. And so if we were to translate this literally, it says, but the body is of Christ. But there's another problem with this verse, and that is that the word is is not in the original. The old King James that I have, that I had, I don't have it before me right now, has the word is in italics. Because the translators, in trying to make it clear, in fact, uh, muddied the whole picture of what the verse means. And so the word is is not in the original, so if we truly read it the way it is in the original, it would say, but the body of Christ. Now, what is the body of Christ? Well, if we go back to the first chapter and verse 18, it says, He, referring to Christ, is the head of the body, comma, the church. In other words, the body of Christ is the church. It is the means to which He is working today. He had a physical body when He walked on this earth, uh, you know, head, arms, so forth. Uh, legs, hands, that's how he worked when he was on this earth. But today, he works through the church. And that is the body through which he works today. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the one that guides the church. And that's very important because many people have forgotten who the head of the church is. They don't have faith that Jesus Christ can lead his church. Now, the church is never going to be perfect, but Christ is still going to work through His church through imperfect human beings. And we stumble and we make mistakes and we, you know, we, we have our problems, but the church of God, the head of that is Jesus Christ. In verse 24 of chapter 1, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, 
for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, when you study Colossians, you find that he, he speaks a great deal about the body and how he works. In fact, if you notice the second chapter and verse 9, it says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You see, Paul was dealing with a heresy. And he's setting the stage for it. And this heresy we learn about in verse 8, where he really begins to come clear as to what this heresy is. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. He doesn't say through the Old Testament laws. He says, Don't let someone come along and cheat you through philosophy. An empty deceit according to the tradition of men. Now, note that. It is the tradition of men. Whatever we might think about the Sabbath, about the holy days, about laws of clean and unclean meats, they did not come about as tradition of men, but they came about from God instructing Moses. And, in fact, the Sabbath goes all the way back to creation when He made it for man. But we do not find these things as traditions of men. They are... The, uh, the days that God set up, they are laws that God gave us. Just like the animal sacrifices are, are not traditions of men. They came from God. We don't keep those animal sacrifices anymore. But we can't say that, well, they're traditions of men or philosophies of men. Or as it goes on here to say, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, I've actually heard an explanation of this that instead of saying the basic principles or, or elements, they, they say the, the ABCs of the Old Testament, meaning that back then in the Old Testament they had to do all these animal sacrifices, but now that's all been done away with, you know, through Christ. Well, the sacrifices have, but they, they take the whole law and throw it out, including the holy days and the Sabbath, because they're the ABCs. But that's not what it says here. It says they are the basic principles, not of the Old Testament, but of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, why does it tell us that in Christ is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily? Well, we have to understand a little bit of what was going on here. There were a group of people called Gnostics. And the Gnostics were people who had special knowledge. They thought they had special knowledge. Let's put it that way. We hear more in, in recent times about the Gnostic Gospels and, and various Gospels that uh, came out of Alexandria in the second century and people put some stock in them. They, they just, they're, they're just bizarre in some of the things that are stated in them. Now, there were... Gnostics who came from a Jewish background. There were Gnostics who came from various Gentile backgrounds. Uh, some of the Gnostics were uh, very libertine in their approach. They felt that, well, they can't be good enough uh, to obey God. And so, they, anything went. They, they were very loose morally. But many of the Gnostics were at the other extreme, that they were ascetic. Some of them believed that they were not to get married. And, and you see some of these things that have come down through what we consider traditional Christianity, the, uh, the celibacy of, of priests, for example, uh, not eating meat on certain days. Uh, a lot of these different ideas, either directly or indirectly, uh, probably came from Gnosticism. We don't know all those things for sure, but we, we see kind of remnants of it in that way. Now, the, the problem here that Paul was dealing with were people who were coming around to the Gentile Colossians and they were telling them that they weren't complete or that Christ was not complete in Himself, that they had to go through these various intermediaries. In other words, God was so perfect and man is so imperfect that no matter how careful you are, how ascetic you are, meaning you, you give up this and that and you... you live a very Spartan existence, uh, no matter that, you had to go through various angels to get to God, eventually to, to Christ and then to God. 
this is kind of the concept there, and we'll see that as we go through this. But the, the right understanding here is that he said, look, don't let one of these individuals come along and judge you in food or in drink. In other words, what you eat, what you drink, regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body of Christ. In other words, let the body of Christ teach you these things. And you know, this is really important because there are always going to be questions of, of how to observe these days. We were discussing in some of our council meetings uh, in the past where uh, the, the night to be observed. The, the Bible doesn't tell us all the details of how to observe the night to be observed, but it does say it is a night to be observed, much observed. So there are traditions that the church has had down through time. And the Sabbath, we have three songs, we have a, uh, an opening prayer, we have a sermonette, we have another hymn, we have announcements. Uh, well, I leave out the sermonette. Yeah, I think I mentioned sermonette, and then three hymns, and then, and I, uh, then one hymn. Well, you know what I'm talking about. We have a certain way that we go about observing the Sabbath in a special way. But we, we can go back to the book of Nehemiah where we see that they stood up on a pulp of wood or a, a, a platform of wood so that they could read and they made the Scriptures understandable to people. But to a great degree, we go on the traditions of the church. But they are traditions that fit within God's law. Now, we have here where people are coming along and saying, look, you, you shouldn't enjoy all this food. You shouldn't have all this to drink. You shouldn't do these things on a new moon, a festival, a Sabbath, a new moon. We, we observe the new moon every year on the Feast of Trumpets, as an example. He says, these, uh, the, all these things, in other words, the, the festivals, the Sabbaths, are a shadow of things to come. They foreshadow future events. And that's a very important statement here because it gives us the clue. It gives us a key to understanding the meaning of these days, that they foreshadowed future events. He says, but the body of Christ. In other words, let the body of Christ teach you concerning these things. And, and some of our brethren, frankly, need to understand that, that everything is not left up to individual conscience. It, it just isn't. For example, the day of Pentecost when we meet. It's not left up to every individual to determine when that is. Whether we use this calendar or that calendar, it's, it's not left up to every individual because we have chaos out there. We just have more and more proliferations of groups who then puff themselves up, thinking, well, I've got the right calendar, I've got the right this, I've got the right that. And they focus that as being the gospel as opposed to preaching the gospel of the world. And that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants us all divided. Now, we're not talking here about doing away with the law of God. The church never had that, that right to do that. But within the law of God, to explain some of these things, he's put the church in that position. And that's been explained in the past. So he's saying that, look, let, don't let someone come along, one of these philosophers, one of these people who um, are, are passing on just the traditions of men, which have nothing to do with Scripture at all, who are, are coming along and deceiving you about these things. Don't let them come along and tell you what to do on these holy days, which are shadows of things to come. But the body of Christ, let the body of Christ, let the church that Christ is the head of, that is who is to teach us how to observe these days. And then he goes on in verse 18, Don't let someone cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. You see, this is where they get into this, this false humility. We can't eat very well. We can't enjoy a, a nice uh, drink of wine or whatever on a holy day. We've got to be more ascetic there. Uh, this is the attitude of, of mind that they had. And the worship of angels, going through these various angels up to uh, reaching God. Therefore... If you died with Christ from the basic principles, notice, of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations do not touch, do not taste, do not handle? In other words, this form of uh, Jewish Gnostic uh, asceticism, asceticism that was being taught there, which all concern things which perish with using according to the commandments, notices, and doctrines of men. 
the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This is more the, the meaning that we should take away from this passage. Uh, it, it doesn't do away with God's laws. It says, no, they, they, these, these holy days, the Sabbath, foreshadow future events. You see, the weekly Sabbath foreshadows the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the 7,000-year period. Uh, we see that the Passover foreshadowed Christ's crucifixion. That's why Jesus didn't die just any day of the year, but He actually died on the very day of the Passover. And from the time He sat down with His disciples to observe that Passover meal, and knowing what was coming, and the instruction that He is that he gave to his disciples. And knowing that he was going to be betrayed by one of the twelve and having to pass the sop on to that individual. You see, there was a certain amount of agony in all of that. And then going out, he was agonizing in the garden, looking forward to what was happening with, with a certain amount of, of human trepidation uh, and yet submitting himself, himself to the will of God. And then all that night being beaten and spit upon and all the things that happened to him and then finally being put in the grave uh, just before sunset or as the sun is setting the, the following evening. That whole 24-hour period of time, that was the Passover. Not just 3 o'clock in the afternoon when a spear was jammed in his side, but he, he suffered during that whole 24 hours, as it were, until he died. And then, as it were, the body didn't have rest until it was finally put in the grave right at sunset. So, we see that Christ was the Passover. The Passover foreshadowed. It was a shadow of that great event. The Days of Unleavened Bread pictured when the Israelites came out of Egypt. And that was a type of spiritual sin. We see in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verses 7 and 8, or verse 8 specifically, because Christ has died for us, because He is our Passover. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let us move on. Let us put sin out of our lives. Not with the old leaven with, of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we are to come out of sin. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread foreshadowed. And of course, on the last day of Unleavened Bread, when they walked through the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10 uh, the first couple of verses tell us that they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That that was a type of New Testament baptism. And then when they came to the Mount Sinai and God made a covenant with them, He made it on the day that we understand as Pentecost. That was Jewish tradition. And when you look at the time frame, it was right in there. And we know from the mind of God that this is exactly when the new covenant was given on the day that we understand as Pentecost. And so God gave them the physical laws and said, look, you keep these laws, and if you do so, my part of the covenant, my part of the agreement is I will bless you above all people on the face of the earth. But He didn't give them the heart to obey. And that's what He remedied in the New Testament when on the day of Pentecost He poured out the Holy Spirit, which is to write God's law on our minds and in our hearts, put it in our hearts, where we have the desire, not whatever is in my heart is right, but taking God's law and putting it in our heart. But first of all, in the mind where we obey, and then we have the heart, we, we desire to do it as we do these things. Now, all of this is summarized in Acts, the second chapter, Acts 2 and verse 36. It says, Therefore, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, as he gets to the end of his sermon, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, not just any Jesus, but the one that you crucified, he says, may this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, or the Anointed One, the Messiah. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They realized that all of their lives they were waiting for the Messiah. And Peter convicted them of the fact that they killed the Messiah. And that affected them in a profound way. You know how it is when bad news of some kind hits. 
you, you just feel it right in the stomach. And a combination of, of fear, of uh, heartache, whatever it is, suddenly hits you. That's what they felt. So, we see here, Passover. Christ died. And they said, what shall we do? And he says in verse 38, repent. That's come out of sin, come out of Egypt. Keep the days of unleavened bread, in other words. And let every one of you be baptized, symbolized by the last day of unleavened bread, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Pentecost. So we have Passover, unleavened bread, and Pentecost. All shown right here in these three verses. Now, in the same way, we go to the book of Revelation, and we see how the last holy days and festivals of God are summarized. In the 19th chapter of Revelation, it uh, talks about Christ coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that that really took place at an earlier time, but it's uh, in uh, Revelation, the 11th chapter, verses 15 to 18, it speaks of that, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. But here in Revelation, the 19th chapter, it speaks of Christ coming there, His coming. In verse 16, it says, He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it speaks of this great battle that's going to take place and how He uh, is seen coming on a white horse, verse 11. So we have the coming of Christ, the, the seventh trumpet of the, the day of the Lord. And then we get to chapter 20, and the first three verses tell us that one of the first things Christ is going to do is remove Satan. So he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years are finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Then verse 4 talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ, or the millennium. And then when we get to the end of the, of the uh, chapter, we see that there's a great white throne judgment. So here we have the sequence. We have the return of Christ, the seventh of the seven trumpets of the day of the Lord. We have Satan being removed. We have the millennium. And then we have what happens after the millennium, which is the white throne judgment. In other words, we have trumpets, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, and we have the last great day. But right in the middle between trumpets and tabernacles, we have verses 1 through 3. This great event which must take place, which is the removing of Satan. This is just one of the ways that we know that this goat is representing uh, Satan being removed because of the sequence here. It shows us that that is a sequence of events that must take place. Just as in Acts, the second chapter, it kind of summarizes the first uh, three holy days. Here we have the last four that are summarized in direct order in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Further evidence that the Azazel goat must, remove, must be removed if we are to be at one with God, is found in scriptures such as 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, and it shows that there will never be at one There will never be atonement as long as Satan is around. So 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So, the God of this age, Satan the devil, has blinded all minds, for that matter, except that those minds who, whom God has opened up. Where, where God has opened our minds, He has called us, He's given us an opportunity, and then He gives us His Spirit. Without that, our minds are totally blinded. And Satan the devil has done that. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, Ephesians 6 and verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of darkness of this age, not the age to come, but of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And you know there are many other scriptures that we could turn to. Uh, Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 1 and 2. How he is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. We could go back to Isaiah, the 14th chapter, Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, showing how Satan is, is the great deceiver. Revelation 12, 9. There, there are so many passages on this that show that he has blinded. He, has, he is the ruler of this age. And as long as he is round, we will never be at one with God. And that's what at one means, or atonement. It means being at one, at one with God. Fasting is an integral part of this day. If we go to Matthew, the fourth chapter, we see that, that this is how Christ was over, overcame Satan. When Satan gave him these temptations, it was at the end of his fasting when he was physically exhausted, physically weak but he was spiritually powerful and strong. And he was able to see through all of Satan's devices and, you know, throw them off and eventually tell Satan, get out of here. Leave me alone. Get out of here. And Satan slunk away. Because he did so through fasting. We see in James, the fourth chapter, James 4, that fasting is a way that we... We need to humble ourselves. He speaks of uh, verse 6. He gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So God wants us to be humble. He doesn't want us to be proud. We have to resist the devil, and we can only do so through humility. He says, draw near to God, verse 8, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Then verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. This is also spoken of in the, the book of uh, 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, verses 5 through 10. Back in Psalm 35, Psalm 35 and verse 8, it shows us the connection between humbling ourselves or afflicting our souls and uh, fasting. In Psalm 35, verse 13, David says, But as for me, when they, my enemies, his enemies, were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled myself with fasting. And it's well understood this is why Sandy Koufax, one of the reasons he didn't pitch on that day, because he was fasting, as the Jews do, at least those that are observant at all. They fast on the Day of Atonement. This is one of the reasons that uh, the, the war took place, the Yom Kippur War, because the Jews were fasting on that day, and the enemies, was that 1973, 1974, I always forget the, the exact year, they attacked on that day when they knew that the Jews would be weak, physically speaking. Now, for those of you who always have to know the rest of the story, I'll refer back to Sandy Koufax once again. You know, this, this man was my childhood hero. Many of us as children and teenagers have our heroes. As we grow older, we realize that some of those heroes maybe weren't the best examples to follow, although I don't have anything negative about the man that I know of, but... I'm sure that he wasn't all that I would aspire to today. But he was my hero. So while he was fasting on the first day of the World Series, so was I. And I didn't know what happened until the day came to an end and found out that the Dodgers lost. My team, as I saw. They lost 7 and nothing. The next night, Koufax went out and he pitched a very good game. After fasting, he only let in one run. But the Dodgers again lost one to nothing. The next three games, the Dodgers actually won, with Koufax pitching a complete game shutout in game five. Minnesota took game six, so the teams were tied up three games apiece. And then the critical decision, the critical decision that had to do with the Day of Atonement and Sandy Koufax, do they pitch 
Koufax with two days rest, which was very, very difficult, even though he's their best pitcher, but he only had two days rest, or do they go with another pitcher who had more rest? And the manager, Walter Alston, took a tremendous gamble. He sent Sandy Koufax out to pitch game seven. And what Sandy Koufax did with two days rest was to pitch a three-hit shutout, winning game three. His second shutout of the series, his second complete game, he only gave up one run during those three games. What Sandy Koufax did 43 years ago, though, which is really more remarkable than the results of the series, and what he will be remembered for more than anything else, is that he was the Jew who refused to pitch on the first day of the World Series because it was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And what he was saying was, to the whole nation and to the world, is that there are some things more important than baseball. And yet, he did not have the full understanding that you and I have. He did not understand that the high priest was a type of Jesus Christ. He did not understand that all of those animal sacrifices were a type of Christ offering up His blood for us. He did not understand the meaning of it. He didn't understand that the second goat was a representative of Satan that had to be removed before there could be atonement. He simply did not understand all of those things. He couldn't because of his background. He didn't probably understand the full significance of fasting, that we are to humble ourselves in that way. As a Jew, Sandy Koufax recognized the importance of this day. I hope that we as well recognize the importance of this day. And you know, someday, I hope that my childhood hero, I'll have the opportunity to meet, and I'll be able to say to him, could I have your autograph? Not that that'll be important as a spirit being. And remind him of the time that he refused to pitch on the Day of Atonement. And then be able to sit down Probably it won't be me, but you dream. Maybe have the opportunity to sit down and say, do you know why you were to fast on that day? And then be able to explain to him the full significance that we've explained here today, starting right back in the book of Leviticus and going through all the way to the end and showing him the real significance of why Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is so important, and why it was that he fasted ultimately on that day.